Hello and welcome or welcome back to the podcast where research transforms lives. I'm Dr Rosie Anderson and every Thursday this summer I'm inviting you to take a deep dive with me into the UCL research that has changed the world around you. This time we're going planet hunting with Plato. Plato being the upcoming planetary transits and oscillations of the STARS mission from the European Space Agency and the instruments it will be using to detect planets in distant galaxies were developed here at UCL in the Mullard Space Science Labs. These super-sensitive optical sensors, called charge-coupled devices or CCDs, are often the sensor of choice for space science missions and their performance in the harsh conditions of space is critical to the mission's success. The Mullard Space Science Lab's CCD sensors have helped create a 3D map of the Milky Way and will soon be hunting for the origin of the universe on the European Space Agency's Euclid probe. Behind all this boldly going is a long-standing partnership between MSSL and Teledyne UK, one of the leading manufacturers of CCDs. Over 300 devices have been evaluated in MSSL's specialist instrument science facilities, and the results have helped develop ever more sophisticated sensors and helped the company win major contracts. I spoke with MSSL's Professor Alan Smith about what it takes to see the limits of the universe. Let's start by saying that we should have had David Morris, Chief Engineer of Space Imaging at Teledyne UK, with us today. Sadly, he is not well, um, so we aren't able to go on location to meet him, which would also have been a first for the series, the podcast series. Sadly, not to space, to Chelmsford, but, you know, it's all exciting. And, <laughs> and we just hope, David, if you do listen to this, that you're getting better. But Alan, you're going to stand in and you're going to explain everything about <laughs> about your work with with David and with Teledyne. Um, so if you're up for the challenge of doing yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, why would you want to look for things in deep space? Uh, why would you want to look for things in space at all? And particularly things like planets, why would you want to map the Milky Way? Astronomy is one of the sometimes called the second oldest profession. We're, mankind <laughs> or humankind has had an interest in the stars and the, the, the workings of the universe. And we find that the more we understand about the world around us, the more comfortable it is to live in, really. Um, most technology derives from science in one way or another. Hmm. So there's a public interest in space. Uh, there's no doubt about that. People are inspired by things to do with astronomy. Some of the, the most attractive images that people see are those of astronomical objects. We're also interested in our origins. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What's outside? The What's beyond the blue sky? So I think there's, there's a number of reasons. I'll briefly explain why I do it, but there's a number of reasons. Um, Curiosity-driven science is at one level, but I see space science just as a branch of physics. There are things in space which we cannot easily reproduce on the Earth. Such circumstances, pressures, densities, temperatures, all sorts of things, what we can't hope to reproduce uh, on the Earth in experimental forms. But to test our laws of physics, we need to look at things in space uh, where the rules don't apply that apply on the Earth. And... Um, so extrasolar extra planets, in, the, in our solar system, we have eight. Um, we have thousands to look at, and they're all different. They're all very different in their nature, 
extraordinarily different in their nature. And uh, we learn a lot from studying those, those objects in space. And to do that, we need some really quite fancy technology. Yeah, so I, I thought when I was thinking about, well, how, how do I approach this without David? And I was thinking I should ask start by asking Alan, why 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 do we need charge coupled devices? But then I was like, well, why would you want to do the things that you do with charge coupled devices in the first place? Um, but what are charge coupled devices? Because that's what your case study was about. So um... yeah, absolutely. So so they're um, they're they're basically um, detectors, which um, you you they're a bit like a photographic plate where you can uh, project an image onto the surface of the charge coupled device, and it will it will remember the scene that it sees. But instead of doing this by some sort of photographical, photographic chemical process, it does it by uh, using the individual packets of light that fall on the device and turning those into an electric signal, storing that electric signal on the device, and then when asked to, quietly reading out that signal into some computer system. So we, we convert the light image into an electrical image and then we move the image off. The problem um, and the, in a way, that the great asset of charge coupled devices is that you can have millions of individual pixels, which individually measure the brightness of the light, just, on your, just like on your high definition TV. You can have millions of those pixels, but getting them, getting them off the device and into your computer uh, is enormously tricky. You can't have, on Plato, we have 16 million pixels in each device and um, you, you just can't have 16 million different chains of electronics transferring the data so we have to have some sort of system that shuffles the charge around so that you can actually do it with just two chains of electronics and that's how we do it with a ccd so it's a charge coupled which means the charge moves from one pixel to another and you shuffle the the charge around the pixels and then take them out of the node at the end um, it's very clever. The problem is the poor old charge has to go a, a long way um, in its terms to get from where it is to the, the output node. Uh, it may have to be shuffled you know, many thousands of times. And in each shuffle, um, all sorts of bad things can happen to it. So there's quite a lot of depth to the understanding of, of uh, how CCDs work. Yeah. So would it be simplifying it too much to say it sounds a little bit like a composite eye and the way that that relays information to the brain? Is that, you know... That's that you... probably making it more complicated, to be honest. <laughs> right, I think okay. a composite eye is, is, is worse. It, it, in actual fact, it's very, very simple. It's really just like moving a rook on a chessboard. Um, you go down the column and across the rows. Um, is how you do it. You've just got to do that a large number of times. Mm. How does a charge coupled device differ from other similar light sensors? I don't know, say, or, or indeed image capturing. Um, I don't know what we have in our phones or whatever. And why do you need something like that to tr to do this in space? Yeah, there are there are other sorts of devices. Um, some I won't go through them, but they all have their advantages and disadvantages. Uh, to be honest, and 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 a charge coupled device has advantages in that you can create a very large format, they're relatively low power consumption, um, they, uh, uh, but they have some disadvantages. They're, they're a little bit sensitive to um, damage by the radiation of space, the cosmic rays in space, et cetera, they can be damaged by. Um, it, for, 
for the particular applications we use them for, they're just like the best choice of available devices. The most common reason is that they, they provide the largest format, the right size of pixels, etc. I would say though that in the future and where we are working with Teledyne in the future is, is moving on to, if you like, the next generation of these images. Now that something called a CMOS device is coming on, um, we are we're moving to them. That, that doesn't mean to say we're abandoning um, charge couple devices. There's a similarity between them. There's a connection between them. And it's, a, it's our understanding of CCDs that's allowed us, if you like, to move on to these other other novel types of device. It's a sort of an evolutionary process, uh, which we are sort of engaged with, with, with Teledyne. Mm. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll come on to your relationship with Teledyne and how that happened, but I'm curious to know about you, because how on earth did you wind up designing optical sensors for space exploration? Was that something you just always wanted to do from a child, or was this something that happened to you? In the end of the day, the optical sensors uh, for space exploration are like a, the, uh, the solution to a problem. Um, but this is you know, it's not the only problem I've ever been involved in, if you like. So I, I began life um, from a very early age as being a very in interested in astronomy. Um, I did a PhD uh, working on sounding rockets uh, flying out of Woomera. And uh, I was interested in both the astronomy and the technology that was putting the, that was being used to pursue the astronomy. I went on to work with the European Space Agency and involved in other technologies used for sensors and satellites. We eventually turned up at UCL. I had a sort of an interest in photon sensors of one sort or another. And CCDs just happened to be the right one at the right time. How did you come to have this relationship with Teledyne then? And maybe it would be good to start by explaining exactly what Teledyne are and what they do. Well, Teledyne, when we first uh, worked with them, we've been working with Teledyne uh, for a long time. Uh, MSSL has probably been working with them for more than probably 40 years. But I've been, I've joined MSSL, uh, UCL about 30 years ago. So that's the Mullard Space Science Lab. Mullard Space Science Lab, yeah. yeah. And at that time, um, there was already good working relationships with Teledyne. Now, Teledyne, at the time they were called E2V, English, uh, English, English electric valves or something. And then they were taken over more recently and since about 2017 by an American company called Teledyne, who are a bigger player, if you like, in this field. They've been working on sensors and selling sensors. Uh, uh, E2V have been working on selling sensors for a number of years. And we were one of their customers, really. Uh, they have a reputation and, and a very deserved reputation of producing probably the highest quality sensors of this type anywhere in the world. They're extremely good at what they do. They are the, they are, I wouldn't like to say Rolls Royce, but I was told off by Rolls Royce for saying this, but they are the, the best, uh, the best productors of sensors. They, they don't really make sensors that you get in your mobile phone. They're pretty good. You get them from Japan or somewhere, but these are, these are a mark above that because they need, we need to understand it really very precisely how they work. They need to be extremely reliable. And, um, and perform extremely well. Um, and so uh, there was a growing relationship. We had a 
I remember a contract we had with Lockheed Martin in the States back in probably about 1990, where we acted, we acted as uh, the procurer. We bought the devices from E2B and then we added value by pu pu putting them through a, a sort of a calibration uh, process. And in that calibration process, we learned a lot more about the devices. And we shared that, of course, with back to E2B. So E2B were making better devices because of us. And we were um, we were benefiting on that relationship because they were telling us about their devices in great detail. And so it was a, a symbiotic relationship, which has just grown and grown since then. We've had a number of other programs since then. And most of them had the same basic structure. Teledyne are the producers of the devices. They, they, they're, they're a little bit like um, uh, micro microelectronics. Um, uh, so they produce the devices in their incredibly clean environments, etc. We get to calibrate them. We feedback. We usually build the electronics that reads out the devices. So that's not trivial. And then it, either we or more often, because they're very expensive, um, something like the European Space Agency actually pays Teledyne for the devices. In the Plato's case, um, uh, it, it's you know it's beyond forty million pounds worth of devices that have been procured from Teledyne, which all of which will come through us and be studied by us and then passed on to the spacecraft. Yeah, because I, I, that's a huge amount of money. I think when we think of space exploration, we tend to think a lot about, you know, the wonder of it, what we started this interview with. And I think that's what fires people's imaginations and that's very appropriate. But but obviously this is a highly competitive industry as well, isn't it? And um, Teledyne and your lab are plugged into this global in industry and market for technology. Had David been here, I'd be asking him about this too, but... Could you explain for our listeners why that industry and why that market exists and how it's how it relates to other things, how it relates to other products, how it relates to things that maybe aren't based around space exploration, but are actually part of our very terrestrial world? Well, in, in terms of in terms of Teledyne and what they do um, is that they, they produce all sorts of other technologies. But let's just focus on their imaging area. Mm. scientific images is where their specialty is. So they've chosen not to go down the mass production route for, say, mobile phones, um, the cameras in the phones or the cameras in the the, 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 the um, Canon camera that you might buy in the high street. They've, what they've gone for is um, with the more sort of institutional scientific use of such sensors. Now, some of that is space, but most of their actual market is, is more ground-based things. Sensors, sensors of this type are used all over science. You quite often need to image something. Um, they can be configured in all sorts of clever ways that you might not imagine, not just simple images, but because you can move the charge around, you can move the image as the, as the object moves across the screen, for instance. So you can do all sorts of fancy imaging techniques. They're Could using you... a lot of ground-based astronomy, lots and lots of ground-based telescopes around the world are, are using uh, Teledyne or E2V uh, sensors in numerous uh, instruments that sit on their focal planes. Uh, um, and so they, they really specialised in that area. They, I would say that the when a new technology comes along, quite often it requires a thorough understanding of that technology before you can really commercialise it. So it's needed 
Uh, this all started off with uh, CCDs were invented in Bell Labs back in the 60s in the States. And, you know, it once that sort of understanding of the physics that's going on within those were, were possible, then the more commercial spin-offs occurred. So the cameras that you see um, in your mobile phones or the, uh, or, or the street cameras and all those sorts of things, you can route them all back to places like Bell Labs, which was trying trying to get to grips with a particular um, uh, process that's going on within silicon. And uh, and what Teledyne have done is focused on the science application. Others have taken this technology and run off and produced commercial products. Um, and, you know, the, the, um, the, the camera on my laptop is, is just, if you like, uh, an extension of that process. And presumably everybody's laptop. Everybody's laptop. Not, not just Mine. yours. You, you don't have a special kind of space-going <laughs> laptop or something, Alan. <laughs> no, I don't have a space-going laptop. <laughs> um, well, that, I think that's a good illustration because, I mean, trying to look at silicon, the structure of silicon, and searching for planets in deep space, to my mind, is very different. But actually, the technology, it seems you're saying, is fundamentally, it's, it has the same ancestry. And it's just that it's being picked up and used in all sorts of different applications. Is, is that right? It is. But the thing, but the thing that in space science is really that you you choose the best tool that you can find for the job that you have to do. And space science is is really very very competitive. Um, we, you know, it's it sounds like a lot of money, but there are actually relatively few um, science missions that are flown across the world. And so when you when you sort of add it all up and say how much is the man in the street spending a year on space science, it's a it's about one euro a year. So that's it's you know it's it's not a vast amount of uh, money for the individual, and mm. but it's a it's a it's a very very competitive. So that means we have to we really have to when we propose the mission we have to propose the best possible return on the the value. The cop. So we have to have the best possible science return. All this judged by other scientists and people like that. Mm. But we have the best possible return. And so um, we need the best possible instrumentation. And that's why we work closely with um, with E2V. Because working together, we can make that case. And, and we've made it very well for a number of missions now. Mm. Yeah, I think probably that's something which a lot of people, myself included actually, um, wouldn't necessarily think about as being part of the um part of the calculation that goes into what to back and what not to back um you know the the what you described as the science return but that that has you can quantify that in various ways but it includes the benefit will have the knock-on benefit to all sorts of other industries all sorts of other technologies um you know the adaptation of that technology but i was struck by something you were saying before which is that it takes a long time for this sort of um, exploratory and sophisticated science to be uh, ready to be used in those ways, even even to use it in, in that initial uh, space mission, which then goes on in the future to have all sorts of other knock-on benefits. And I'm just thinking that that's a long game when it comes to investment, when it comes to people's careers, all sorts of things. And you know, longer even than, than some of the other things that we've talked about in, in this podcast series. So are there any particular challenges that come with being part of a, a world that works on over that long game? Well, I mean, it's 
for the for the individual scientist who's working in in an area of technology, um, the challenge is that someone comes up with something better uh, before you get there. So it, it is competitive. So you might spend ten years of your life developing the what you think is the best the best infrared detector ever made, and then some guy in um, Belgium or something comes up with a better one, and no one talks to you again, basically. Mm. Um, because they, there's no reason for them to. So it can be a bit like that. Um, and you go, if you go to conferences where people are sort of like presenting their wares, just talking about the work they're doing, it is actually quite competitive. Um, and in order to get a grant to do something, um, you need to make the case that what you're doing is of, of you know, of a world class level. Uh, these days, grants are just as incompetitive. So if you don't make the case that you are, this would put you at the front of something, then you're not going to get, you're not going to get funding. So um, you do have to take a bit of a risk, and it's a, it is a long-term view. Uh, in, you know, we see artificial intelligence at the moment. Uh, everyone's talking about artificial intelligence, but that technology has been bubbling up for years and years and years, and now we're starting to see it become a bit more ubiquitous mm. um, and uh, uh, I think that you see that that sequence uh, yeah. run through. Yeah. I, I think it also helps make sense of why you would have such a, an ongoing and tight relationship with not just Teledyne but presumably lots of other um, partners in the industry itself. I think there's um, a long-standing belief in the public imagination that you know science and research in general happens and then people do things with the what comes out of that. But what you're describing as a world where you can't really afford to be out of that loop. It can't be quite like that, can it? No, you, you, that's absolutely right. Uh, there's so many reasons why we should work closely with a, a, a sort of like a commercial or industrial partner. It's that there's layers and layers of reasons why we should. At, at, the, at the highest level, it, it tells us more. We can influence what they do so that they can direct their um, direct their developments in the direction that we want to go. But also, you know, we enable them to be more profitable. Um, but but there's all sorts of other levels, like make them aware of future possible markets, uh, different uses for the devices. Uh, we can train their staff in our, in, our, in our universities and they go back to work there. We can provide training courses to them. We can do all sorts of things at many different levels within the organisation. The trick is to see it from each other's point of view. Uh, and that's why we get on pretty well with, uh, well, very well with Teledyne, is that we understand where they're coming from and they understand where we're coming from. So you and Teledyne work very symbiotically um, in designing and making these sensors. And then they sell them on uh, to people who are launching space, space missions. Could you... Tell us where some of your uh, sensors have been installed. Who's used them? What kind of missions have they been part of? We we just well, feed yeah. back to them how they work, and they and they take it from there. So we, we're not going to presume that we've we're, we're the sole route to market. Mm. If you look at so what we are is we're working in the space sector. So we've we've provided devices to, for instance, solar physics missions, uh, satellites observing the sun. Sun's a very nice thing to image. Um, we've provided devices uh, that you mentioned the galaxy, so the Gaia mm. mission. Um, we've, we've been working there with Gaia. And um, 
this is uh, mapping with enormous precision, unbelievable precision, the, the positions and movements of, um, of millions of stars in our galaxy. Um, we've also, uh, we're, if it wasn't for the uh, issue in Ukraine, um, we would have flown uh, the Euclid mission, which is looking at the dark universe, the uh, uh, looking at the uh, dark matter and dark energy uh, uh, processes within the universe, another big ESA mission, which is just waiting to be flown when we find a replacement rocket for it. Um, and, and, and many other smaller applications of devices uh, all the time. And Plato is, if you like, the last one. Though I have to say, it's probably got the the largest number of devices, or at least the largest surface area of devices uh, that we've ever been engaged with, with a very big program. From the point of view of just an individual listening to this, just a person um, like me who doesn't know an awful lot about space exploration or the space industry, why should they be excited beyond the curiosity? Let's say that you found somebody who's utterly incurious about what's out there <laughs> but who are who's purely concerned with their everyday life how your work contributes to everybody's everyday everyday life being a little better in some way what is that scientific ret return on the investment that we put into the kind of work that you do from the point of well, view of people who don't go anywhere near outer space <laughs> which is most of I don't us. Know, no it's a very it's a good question so how i would answer it is uh, i'll answer it from a, a national level mm. to start with Okay, so uh, you know the UK uh, needs to needs to uh, earn its living somehow as a country, and certain avenues are sort of closed to us. We we don't do as much shipbuilding or coal mining or things like that. What we what we seem to do really really well is develop new technologies, um, and in order to develop new new technologies, aren't just a guy in a garage inventing something. New technologies take a long time to develop. And at the heart at the base of that development is a fundamental understanding of the, the, if you like, the science behind the technology. You've got to have that in order to develop it. So, you know, if we want to live in a, a, a you know, a, an economy which is based on being at the edge of new technologies, then the sorts of things that we're doing with Teledyne, and that's going on all over, um, all over the place, in, in all over academia, Glasgow and Teledyne, that's an essential requirement to live in the sorts of country that we live in. Uh, we, we're not an agricultural-based country, though we, we do plenty of that, but we, 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 it's future technologies that are our way forward. That's all for now. I hope to see you next time, where I will be talking to Professor Jennifer Hudson about helping governments and charities build public support for sustainable international development. If you can't wait until then and want to hear more about the impact of UCL's research on society and the world, then why not take a listen to Made at UCL, presented and produced by our students. Finally, I want to thank Professor Alan Smith, our guest, and of course, you, our listeners. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insight and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.